freak anybody out. <laughs> Just a little. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm the teaching pastor of Christ the King. And I'm about to do something that I swore 26 years ago I would never, ever, ever, ever do. That I would tackle the book of Revelation. It scares me to death. My pulse rate right now is like thump, 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 thump. And I have had no caffeine all day long. The reason we're doing this is very, very simple. You asked for it. Okay? You asked for it. The reason that the book of Revelation is the most requested book that people want to hear preached is because they don't understand it. The reason why the book of Revelation is the most avoided book by pastors is because they don't understand it. And I in no means am going to stand up here and try to tell you that I have cornered the market and understanding on the most controversial book in your entire Bible. This book is controversial, misunderstood, misused, and for those very reasons, I am terrified to try and pursue this. So I can just speak as plainly as I possibly can. I'm doing this out of sheer obedience because Jesus told me to. And we're just going to walk through it. We are not going to light tread anything. We're not going to sidestep any of the difficult passages. A lot of places, they preach the, the letters to the churches, and then they skip chapters 4 through about 19, because that's where all the weirdness is. And then they pick up 20 and 21, and they go, let's call it good. We're not going to do that. We're going to actually wade through this stuff, and I'm going to try and do it as creatively and with a smile on my face. If you want to pray for something right now, pray that Grant stays happy all summer long. That's what we're looking for, all right? This past week, I met a little boy named Dalton in the waiting room as I was waiting to come home from Texas. He was 10 years old. He was wearing orange under armor from head to toe. He had big, thick, black-rimmed glasses and a set of bright blue Beats headphones. And I was telling Pastor Todd, take Sam Middlebrook, Turn him into a 10-year-old with the same proportions, and you had my little buddy Dalton. He was exhausted because he'd been waiting in the airport for a really, really long time. And he was using the leather seats that I was sitting on that were matched up with another set of leather seats. He was using them as basically a jungle gym. And he was running back and forth and bouncing everybody around because Dalton was not a small kid. Okay, just do you get the visual of what this kid looks like? And he was enjoying himself and utterly bored. So he started reading over my shoulder as I was typing on my computer this particular message. And he would stop and look down and read a little bit. And then he'd run back and forth a few times. And then he'd come back and read over my shoulder again. And finally, he started talking in my ear and the questions started coming. True story. Y'all a pastor? I said, yeah. Y'all working on a message from the Lord? <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, y'all getting ready to preach the book of the Revelations? I said, yeah. He says, my pastor says the four horsemen are Chris Brown, Kanye West, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, and Taylor Swift because she's singing that Black Magic Voodoo song right now. True story. And then he said, that stuff down there, that scares me. That little Texas meatball, he won my heart. I mean, I just fell in love with that kid. He said what I think a lot of people believe. That stuff, right, that stuff scares me. We're not going to approach this book based on fear. 
no way. That will not fly here. Some of you remember, I actually preached Revelation chapter 1 at the beginning of the last series. Not the last series, but the series that was called The Last. I posted it on Facebook this week. I want to encourage you to go back in that series and refresh your memory on Revelation chapter 1. Because that weekend I made a statement then, I'm going to make it again so you understand where my heart is as we come towards this truth. Revelation was never intended to scare you. Never. But to show you a more complete picture of Jesus... Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 starts with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The translation that Ryan read for you said the revelation from Jesus Christ. The Greek word can be interpreted both ways. So it's both from him and of him. Do we understand that? It's about him. So I want us to get this before we even start. This book was never intended to be the revelation of a calendar. Never intended to be the revelation of a timeline or a really big chart. But some of that is in there. It was never intended to be a place of strong opinion where church people could include or exclude people based on their preference or their position. It was never intended to freak you out. In fact, the book of Revelation originally was written to a group of people who were already freaked out. They didn't need anybody else to add what was going on. They were, they were Christians being persecuted by two of the most maniacal emperors in Roman history. Nero and Domitian. These guys were crazy. The reason the book was written to them was to bring them hope. So if this doesn't bring us hope, we have missed it and we are so wasting our time. I said this the first time I preached that Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to refresh your memory. The word apocalypsis. It means a revealing or an unveiling. It doesn't mean global thermonuclear war. It doesn't mean mushroom clouds or gas masks. It doesn't even mean Armageddon. It's the same word that you use when a bride walks through the doors at her wedding and everybody goes, wow, doesn't she look beautiful? It's a beautiful word and it doesn't carry any fear with it at all. You know who's added fear to it? People who think that you can press people into heaven by scaring the hell out of them. That's where it comes from. But that's not what was intended. I love the fact that the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. I love doing weddings. Weddings are awesome. I became a pastor for some of those words. I now pronounce you husband and wife. What God has joined together, let no man dare separate. I love that moment. And I love the fact that in the very first chapters, first couple of chapters of Genesis, a man and a woman meet together in a wedding, and God brings them together, and it's beautiful. And then we get to the end of the book, and you've got a bride and a bridegroom coming together. And here's what I want to say to you. Don't miss the wedding. Don't get so caught up in all of this stuff that you miss the wedding. Now, people and pastors have approached this book from so many different angles. If you wanted to, you could approach it academically, and we could turn it into an exercise in mathematics and calendaring. And believe me, that's really easy to do. You could approach it exegetically, and we could parse the right Greek verbs and pursue the meaning of every single element of the book, and that would be a valid approach too. You could approach it theologically, and we could just walk through every single verse and plumb the depths of every single piece, and, and that would be a, a possible way too. That, all of those ways and, and, and approaches are valid. But I feel like God has spoken in a very specific way that's somewhat befitting who I try to at least be as a person. And we're not going to go that way at all. I want to approach the book pastorally. Because I'm a pastor. 
And I'm going to say something. We can read this all we want to. But unless we move beyond information, there will be no transformation. And I'm not interested in filling your head with a bunch more information. If you want more information, turn on channel 20 at 3 a.m. and you'll get plenty. Probably freak you out. I'd love to see our hearts and our minds and our perspectives get more fixated on the central character of this book, who is Jesus. And I'm not just praying that for you. I want my heart to be transformed. If we're going to spend three months in this book, I want my heart to be changed and transformed and flipped upside down. I want some of that inner stuff that's just stuck inside of me to get torn out. I want more G. I, might, I want him to increase and me to decrease. I want us to just every week to walk out of here going, God, Jesus. That's what we're looking for. So this week is basically introduction, and I got a lot to cover, and then we're going to settle in for an amazing summer, and I do have this challenge to you. Normally, you guys know how it works, right? I tell everybody, ah, you can pretty much take the summer off, go hang out, you know, enjoy the sun. I understand how it works between Memorial Day and Labor Day. Nobody shows up at church anyway. Unless I'm on vacation, I'm going to be here preaching my brains out, and I want to encourage you to come. I just want to encourage you to come. Scripture says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves. I don't think that precludes summertime. So if you're in town, I don't care if it's 85 or 92 degrees, I'm just inviting you to come to church and let's walk through this thing together. Because then you can't complain and say, well, you never talked to us about that stuff. Well, here we are. Here we are and here we go. Okay? All right? My hands finally stopped shaking. That's really good. In its simplest form, let me tell you what Revelation is. It's a series of prophetic visions given from God to John, his best friend. And I love the fact that he gives it to John. John's nickname in scripture is the apostle that Jesus loved. And now he's sharing it with us, so I guess that means we get to fit in there too. We are the people that God loves, and that's why he gave it to us. You know what? I've never once tried to scare my child intentionally. I've done it accidentally a few times, which is a lot of fun. But um, I've never tried to intentionally freak out my kid. You know why? Because that's not what a good dad does. And I don't think our Heavenly Father is going to do that either. So it's a series of prophetic visions given to one of Jesus' best friends. And that's what makes this so hard. Has anybody else ever had a dream you didn't understand? You know, you've seen something in your mind's eye. It's like, I don't have a clue what that means. And I mean, I have no idea why Todd King does interpretive dance in my dreams. I have no idea. And I don't understand why that stuff is in my head, but sometimes I'm like, there is no spiritual meaning to that at all. This stuff has spiritual meaning wrapped all the way through it. And that's what makes it so difficult because this vision of John is full of images and those images are open for interpretation. Okay, I'm going to make a bold statement. Anyone that tells you they have a full understanding of everything in this book is lying to you. They're lying because some of it is interpretation, and we have to be okay with that. So we're going to practice something right now as a church, okay? Hold your hand out like this. Come on. This is how we're going to do this whole series. We're not doing it like this. We're going to do it like this. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. All right? 
Let me break this some, about, or, uh, some of this out for you. As we embark on this journey, we're going to run into some terms we've never heard before, some views that we think may be a little different, some perspectives that we don't understand, some roles that we've never heard of before, and some numbers that don't seem to compute in our head. Let's start with some of the terms, okay? These are just a few of them. We're going to run into the word millennium, okay? Some of you are just like, millennium falcon? I just woke up. You know, welcome to the group Trekkie fans and Star Wars people, okay? All right? In the book of Revelation, that particular word comes from a Greek word that was translated into a Latin word, which literally means a thousand years. We're going to hear about this millennium, a thousand year period of God's reign. And when we talk about the millennium, we're going to find out that there's different views on how Jesus is going to return that coincides with that particular 1,000 year period. Some people are going to say, I'm pre-millennial, which means I believe that the second massive return of Christ is happening at the beginning of this thousand year period. Other people are going to say, I'm post-millennial. I think he's saving it all to come back at the end of that thousand year period. Other people are going to be all millennial and they don't believe there's a millennium whatsoever. Some of you are like, uh, you've already lost me. Okay, stick with me all the way through. We're going to talk about something called a tribulation, right? People hear that word and they start thinking the trials and tribulations, you know? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. I mean, that's just what we think automatically. That's not what gets said in Scripture about this period. In Revelation, the tribulation is a seven-year period of trial and pain. And once again, people are going to debate about when the church is actually taken from the earth in reference to that thing called the tribulation. Some people were going to believe the church is going to get taken out pre-trib, which means we're not going to live through seven years of really difficult stuff. Some people are mid-tribbers. Other people are post-tribbers. They believe, no, we're here through the whole thing and it's going to suck really bad. Then, then it's going to be better for us. And all, I mean, all of that stuff, and it's going to go back and forth. And you may be absolutely freaked out when I tell you, do you realize that in the book of Revelation, there's only one verse that even subtly infers tribulation? People go, what? It's like, I go ahead. Outside of chapter 3, verse 10, comes from other places in your Bible. That may surprise some of you. We're going to talk about this thing called a rapture. A moment when God takes his church away from the earth. Okay? And we're going to find out some of those pieces just aren't exactly where we thought. Then we're going to hear, uh, you know, this word judgment a lot. And judgment is going to be balanced in with an often understated form of judgment. We're going to run into a new term called the Bema Seat. Okay? I'll tell you what the Bema Seat is. It's a reward seat for the faithful. It's when the God actually comes and rewards people for how you spent your life and your summer in <laughs> I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to ask forgiveness for that. I know I am, all right. But how we actually stewarded this life. Lots of new terms. And there's also going to be a bunch of different views, okay? There are four classic historical views about the book of Revelation and how its content applies to history and the future. There's a view called the Preterist view, okay? And they believe that Revelation was all fulfilled in the first few centuries of Christianity. So if you're a Preterist, if you hold a Preterist view of Revelation, you believe all this stuff was done... When the followers of Jesus were being persecuted by Nero and Domitian, and it all culminated with the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century. So Preterists basically said, it's all done, we're good to go, it only gets better from here. And the problem with that 
is that there's all kinds of stuff in Revelation that talks about prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. So it causes a bit of a hiccup there. There's another view called the futurist view, which is that all of Revelation is yet to be fulfilled. It's still to come. Futurists say, none of this has happened so far. It's all still out there in front of us. And you can look at that view and go, that would make sense that all of this stuff is still in front of us until you start going, but then why was this written to a group of believers in the first century who are facing unbelievable persecution? Why were they given something to encourage them if none of it was going to happen for 2,000 plus years? Valid question. There's a historical view of Revelation. And historicists will believe that Revelation was fulfilled over the course of Western Christian history. And so they don't just boil it down into the first couple of centuries in the middle of the Roman Empire. They'll say, no, it actually took place over a longer period of time, but it's still been completely fulfilled in this former age of ours. And this one became very, very popular, especially when Israel became a sovereign nation and people started putting all of these aspects together. Now, the issue with that one is, number one, I know this is going to shock some of you, but The United States of America is actually not the central focus of Christianity. We understand that, right? Like, there are believers in China who are facing intense persecution. We have brothers and sisters in Syria who are being martyred for what we're doing tonight. And it's awfully hard to take a view that just focuses on the country that we happen to be so blessed and so insulated to live in. And then there's the other issue of the fact that, you know, history keeps turning into present reality and present reality keeps turning into the moments that are right around us. And some of that stuff just doesn't seem to line up with how Revelation is laid out. And then there's another view, which is the idealist view. They believe that Revelation is being fulfilled symbolically throughout the history of the church. And they, they believe that the symbolism of Revelation is being fulfilled all the time in a cosmic battle between good and evil. And the problem that that view has at some level is that you start looking at this book and asking the question, so what is symbolic and what's literal? Like, is it all just a big picture? And where do, where do I fit in that picture? Four classic views. And I know some of you wanted me to answer the question, which one is right, Grant? Come on. Which one is right? You're going to hear me say this a lot during this series. I don't know. I have an opinion, which will probably show up as we're walking through this, but when it comes to nailing down the perfect view, I am not going to stand here and say, 2,000 years of church history has been waiting for me to say which one is right. That's just stupid, right? I don't know. They have good and bad in both of them. The truth is we need to consider history. We do need to think about what this book was to that group of of unbelievably faithful believers in the first two centuries who were doing their best just to stay alive. They didn't have a Bible, they were living the Bible. We need to consider the original audience, but we also need to look at at current issues. I hear this all the time. It's just like, Grant, what's with the ISIS thing and how are we supposed to respond to that? What if that kind of persecution comes here and how does that fit? And then people start getting all kind of freaked out. We need to look at at the future, and and we need to weigh Christ's return and say we believe he's coming back while also acknowledging the fact the Bible says nobody knows when he's coming back. So my question then becomes, why are you wasting all your time trying to figure out when he's coming back? Because 
my God has a sense of humor, and as soon as somebody puts their finger on like May 15th, 2012, even if that was the original date, I think Jesus will move it, you know? So I'm going to knock it back over here just to show you you don't know nothing, right? That sounded like Dalton for a second there, didn't it, right? You know, and we hear this stuff, and it goes around and around our head, and it, and it just tempts so many of us to throw up our hands and become pan-theologians. You know what pan-theologians are? They're people who just say, you know what, I love Jesus, it's all going to pan out in the end, and that's all I need to know. So I'm going to the beach for the rest of the summer, all right? Here's what's interesting. All of these views and perspectives have very godly people attached to them. In fact, they have people that have, they come armed with verses. But the Bible says, but the Bible says, but the Bible says. And so as we just sit here, just for a second, holding on to all of these different perspectives, I would love it if you just stop for a second with me. Let me just throw a little wisdom in the mix. And this comes from a person who spent way too many years holding on to a position saying, but I'm right. But I'm right. See, when you find a biblical position, it's easy to get attached. It's easy to, to, to lock in and wrap your hand around it and nobody can convince you otherwise. Nobody can tell you different because all you can think of is, but I'm right. I'm right. I want you to notice something about what happens when you take this kind of approach. We don't like talking about it, but the reality is this. God can put anything anywhere he wants to, but you hold your hand like this, and he will not try to force his opinion in there. God's too much of a gentleman. He'll just wait until you get exhausted and can't hold your fist anymore. I know that from experience. So it's not good when you close this, because when you close it, you, your heart's not open, your mind's not open to saying, maybe God has something new he'd like to share with me. Maybe he'd like to confirm something for you. Maybe he wants you to take a position and actually have it drop from your brain 18 inches down into your heart and actually have it change the way you live. That'd be an idea. I think it's also unbelievably arrogant to think that somehow you've arrived and that God has nothing to add to this particular subject. Because I have decided, I've made up my mind. I don't think it's good also to grab a hold of things like this because all of the issues that we're going to kind of walk through and talk about in a very hopefully lighthearted way, they are what I call open-handed issues. Okay? The deed of Jesus, the authority of Scripture, the reality of the resurrection, heaven and hell, those are closed fist issues around here. I'll die on those mountains. Somebody shows up and says, we don't need to preach from the Bible anymore. I got a new book. I'm like, not going that direction, sorry. Those things are worth having good conversations about. But these different ideas and perspectives on Revelation, there's a reason why the Bible calls them mysteries. And I just want to encourage you, don't get so wrapped around them that they become the defining factor about your faith. Because it will make you exclusive, it will make you arrogant, and I'll add one more. It will make you lonely. It will make you lonely. Here's what it all boils down to. Essentially, I think this is the question we're all going to be asking at some point. When's this crazy stuff going to happen? And where in the world do I fit in this order? Right? That's what we want to know. Kind of when's this going to play out? And how am I going to factor in here? As we're walking through this, we're also going to run into some players, I call them. I don't know. I couldn't, we're going to call them characters. 
I'm going to call them people, but some of them aren't people. But here's what we're going to run into over the next months as we go through this. We're going to meet Jesus Christ, the central player, the Son of God and God the Son. He's the key figure in Revelation because the book of Revelation is of Jesus Christ primarily and then of the things to come secondarily. We're going to run into this person called the Antichrist, okay? No one knows who this person is, but many, many, many have guessed. I just Googled it earlier today, and apparently right now, Kanye West, Britney Spears, any sitting president or head of the European Union, Elvis Presley, and even Colin Kaepernick are in the running as people who are the Antichrist. If you don't know who Colin Kaepernick is, he's the quarterback from the San Francisco 49ers and We'll just leave it at that, okay? I've already had people come to me saying, Grant, this is, it's, this is the thing, man. We just need to figure out who the Antichrist is. I'd like to ask us all a question. If we put as much effort into knowing the Christ as we did into trying to figure out the identity of the Antichrist, I wonder how much different our life would be. I wonder if, there we go, I mean, because we just spend so copious amounts of the, all this energy trying to figure out the secondary identity when Jesus is standing right in front of us saying, I love you. Focus here. We're going to run into the two witnesses. We're going to talk about them. Who in the world could they be? We're going to run into the 144,000. Interesting number. We're going to talk about them. We're going to talk about the Lamb as identified as Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Once again, he's the central figure, and he keeps showing up over and over and over again. We're going to see and meet a woman and a dragon, and we're going to have to try and figure out what the horns mean and what that means and what this means. We're going to meet the beasts, okay? You read through the book of Revelation, you're going to run into a lot of beasts, all right? And I don't think they're talking about possums, Okay, I mean, they're, they're beasts with eyes and wings, and it's like, what in the world is that all about? We're going to run into this group known as the Four Horsemen, all right? Pastor Todd gets to talk about those guys. Thank you, Jesus, for vacation that week. Anyway, um, but Todd's going to unpack that, and then we're going to show up again, and we're going to meet this rider on a white horse. We're going to see Jesus as the returning king. I want you to look down the list and notice who thro- shows up three times. Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the central figure. And if we lose him, we will get lost. He's our true north, and we're going to keep coming back to him over and over and over again. As we walk through this, we're going to run into some numbers. You're going to find this book is very numeric, okay? We're going to find the number 12, and it's multiples, like 24 and 144,000. We're going to see how those often represent, but not always, but often represent God's people. We're going to run into the number 10 and its multiples, 1,000, 10,000. And we're going to see how those often refer to complete amounts of time. We're going to run into the number of seven, which is known in Scripture as a number of perfection or a number of completion. And we're going to see seven bowls and seven letters and seven trumpets and seven seals and seven angels and seven churches and the spirit of the seven of them embodied in the Holy Spirit. We're going to run into the number four. We're going to find four winds and four corners of the earth and four horsemen. And then we're going to see different numbers used together. We're going to see the number four and seven used together. If you read through the book of Revelation in the original, it's 28 times that Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. So you've got this number of identifiers multiplied by the number of perfection. And some of you are sitting here already going, 
why does that matter? I like you. You're my people. Some of you are like, some people have way too much time on their hands to sit around and go like, one, two, three, four, four times seven, all right? So how are we going to look at all this stuff without becoming, you know, mathematical or even worse, become numerologists and read numerical meaning into everything that's going on? And I'm reading this week and I'm seeing these different patterns and all I can think of is this. There's got to be somebody behind this. There has to be a master architect putting all of this together not to freak me out, but to bring me hope. So this is going to be a crazy ride. And as we kind of try to walk through this, we need to understand some guiding principles that are going to help us go in the right direction. Okay, you still with me? Everybody here, you all right? Haven't lost you so far? I know it's a lot of info right now, but stick with me, okay? So let me just answer the question very, very briefly. Why did they write this in the first place? Why did Jesus sent an angel to the disciple he loved and said, I need you to write all this stuff down. And this is going to be very confusing for you, but just write it down. While you're in exile, on an island, because of me, and it's hot, and you're hungry, and you're thirsty, but you've got a pen, so write it down. Why? I believe there's four basic purposes if you just read it through. Number one's a tough one. It's to uncover deception in the church. In the church. We spend a lot of time looking at the world and going, oh, they're just so deceived. <laughs> Can I just make an honest admission? I'm very often deceived about what matters, about how I should live, about what I should say, what I should think. I'm often deceived. Because I have this world around me that seems to make things unbelievably attractive. And Jesus is actually going to come along and shoot very straight with his people. If I had to admit something to you as a parent, I've probably not had the hard conversations with my kids as often as I should have. I don't think I'm alone in saying that. I want to be the loving dad who just talks, you know, super positive all the time. And let's just, you know, reinforce you and tell you you're awesome. And then there's moments when they just act like kids. And like, you need to not do that because it's stupid. Stop. You know, and some of us are just like, oh, I couldn't do that with my children. I know, that's why your children are narcissistic savages and, and the lunatics are running the asylum, all right? That's why you're in the cage and they're out running around. So God's going to shoot very straight with us, especially the next couple of weeks. I mean, you need to have a stomach if you're going to come the next couple of weeks because Jesus is not going to pull any punches with his churches. I like that. So if you're here just checking out Christianity, if you want to watch Christians squirm for the come next couple of weeks, we'll take care of it for you, all right? Secondly, it's to encourage holiness in a dark world. I mean, can we agree that it's a dark world? Can we agree that in this much darkness, just a little bit of light goes an awfully long way? Can we agree that Jesus said he is the light of the world, but he also said that we are the light of the world? That's what your Bible says. So it's to encourage holiness in a dark world. We're going to hear a lot about that. Thirdly, it's to increase the urgency of the mission. I mean, the reality is this. If Revelation is true and it says the time's near, in God's time, not ours, I mean, is it possible that we have work to do and a message to share? 
Could it be that maybe you need to stop doing word studies to try and figure out who the Antichrist is and actually have a conversation about Jesus with the person who's been sitting in the cubicle next to you at work for the last 12 years? Could it be that it's time for us to start actually becoming the body and acting like one? And that we would carry this message, a message of hope, to people that don't know because we don't want them to miss the wedding. And fourthly, to bring hope through Jesus to struggling Christians. I love this. If you're struggling, this is such a good book for you and me. This book is, is filled with hope because it was written to struggling believers who were getting beat up every single day. Their friends and family were being martyred all around them. And Revelation, in its original design, was meant to be read out loud so people could hear it and get hope. I don't know if you felt it or not. Something happened in the room when Ryan started reading the book. Like, we're singing the songs, and that's awesome. But when he started reading the book, I mean, my hair started standing up on my arms. I'm just like, what is that? That's the Word of God actually penetrating and starting to move amongst His people. This book is filled with hope. It's filled with answers. And every week, we're going to answer two questions. Where is the hope? Where is Jesus? Those two questions every single week. Where's the hope? Where's Jesus? When I've got a dragon being ridden by a lady who seems to have an interesting profession and it's all freakish and weird, where's the hope and where's Jesus in that? Because I know this is going to be challenging. Some of you are going to be reading going and then the beast had nine eyes. and da, 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 da. What do I do with that today? I understand that. So every week, where is Jesus? And where is the hope? In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus shows up in these words. And some of you are just like, are you actually going to go through Revelation 1? No, you're going to have to go back on the internet and watch that message, okay? In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus shows up this way. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. There it is. And among the lampstands was a man, someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. Just let that settle in. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing water. Think Niagara Falls. In his right hand, he held seven stars. His right hand Seven stars. We're going to start talking about seven churches. And apparently, he who loves those churches and this church loves us enough to hold us right here. In his right hand, he had seven stars coming out of his mouth with a sharp, double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Okay, you know that whole fear thing we talked about at the beginning? This is why we're not going to go down the fear road. What does Jesus say to John when he's completely freaked out? Do not be afraid. If we come back to fear, we've missed it. And then he says, because I am the first and the last. 
I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Those are powerful words, and in my feeble human attempt, I tried to encapsulate it by telling you this. Jesus is sovereign over all of history, supreme above everything, a conquering Savior who redeems, a cosmic ruler of the universe, a coming King who will reign fully, forever, completely. He's fully man and fully God, the complete fulfillment of all prophecy, the ultimate high priest, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, infinitely wise, unlimited in knowledge, holy in every way, possessing complete authority and complete submission to his Father, the author of salvation, the presiding judge, the beginning and the end of creation. He was dead for a short time, but he's alive for all time, perpetually pure, filled with grace and mercy, controlling all that is beneath him. Jesus is incomparable, indescribable, and according to this book, he most certainly is coming back. So where's the hope? I want to give you permission to do something. If you need it at any point during this journey, go to the end of the book and read the last page. Just go ahead and read the end of it. Because I'll tell you where the hope is. The hope is that the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1 has got everything under control. Like, it doesn't look like it to me. Just wait. He has everything under control. And if you know him, your future is absolutely secure. Nothing to worry about. You know what gives me confidence tonight? If God was here... My location is right there. He can wrap his hand around us. We don't get to wrap our hands around the opinions. This is going to be a crazy good summer. I feel a little better now about doing this whole thing. You guys have been very affirming and smiling tonight. Thank you very much. So that's good. Awesome. We're going to take him at his word. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it. And take it to heart, what is written in it. Because the time is near. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this journey. Thank you for this faithful family of God who desperately wants to hear from you way more than they want to hear from me. And I'm thankful for that. Lord Jesus, would you bring us to hope every week? Lord, would you help us not to lose you in the midst of all this? God, would you give us humble hearts as we seek to understand this beautiful picture of hope? God, thank you for everyone's patience tonight as we've gone a little longer than normal. I thank you for their passion and their hope. Father, I pray You would come quickly. Because God, we look forward to the day when every tear will be wiped away. When our hope will be restored, ultimately. But Father, until that time comes, may we be urgent in the carrying forth of this message. Not the message that the end is near. But that the message is truly 
this is just the start of something awesome. We love you and we thank you for considering us loved of God as well. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen.